Good morning. It is always so good to be with you guys. I um, actually was part of the Green Bean Recon on Friday. It was my first time. And I can say it's worth all the hype. It was as exciting as it has been played up to be. I can also tell you it was a late night for an old dad. And uh, this morning, early, our four-year-old daughter was in the bed with us because she had a bad dream. And I'm sore from Friday. And I was kind of like moving slowly coming in this morning. And um, it could be that we have really good coffee. But I think it was being with you guys. I just feel energized. It's good to be here. Um, Friday night, I was talking to one of the students, and they were asking me if I get nervous when I preach. And I said, well, I can't talk about like just preaching anywhere, but when I'm here, these are my people. Um, this is my family, so I don't feel nervous. I feel excited every time I get to do this. So I just want to say, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, and Green Bean Recon is no joke. Um, <laughs> And Linda was savage, like no one was going to find that second can of green beans. Um, <clears throat> so we're continuing our sermon series. By the way, every time I say summer sermon series, I feel like I'm saying a tongue twister, so I try not to say it because I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce it sooner or later. But anyway, we're continuing in our summer sermon series on Psalm 23. And at this point, we're more than halfway done. And what we've been doing is we've been basically moving through almost like a line at a time. And if you've been here from the get-go, you might know we've encouraged you to try to memorize it as we go along. So that if you just memorize one little phrase every week, by the end of the summer, you'll have the whole psalm. So we're up to first five this week, and we're only going to look at the first half of first five today. So... Uh, I just want you to repeat after me. Here's our, here's our uh, lines for today. You prepare a table before me. Come on, I know you can do better than that. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies. Okay, so that's for today. So now, if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand. And what we're going to do is we're going to do all of Psalm 23 up to today's verse, and if you're working on memorizing it, you can do it from memory, and uh, if you're not, you can read along. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is the Word of the Lord. I'm going to pray before you're seated. God, thank you, thank you, thank you um, for your word and for your presence. And Lord, I pray the big prayer this morning, we don't have to ask for your presence because you are with us. 
but I pray that You would make us aware of Your presence. And I pray that You would speak to us through Your Word this morning, that it would transform our hearts and our minds and our actions and our words, and it would change the sort of children and students and workers and spouses and parents and followers of Jesus that we are. I pray that you would show us what it has to do with our life right now, right here. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So just as a refresher, uh, Psalm 23 is a psalm of David. And David was a king of Israel. And before that, um, he was a shepherd. And so the psalm starts with a beautiful and vivid statement, the Lord is my shepherd. And up to this point, David has clearly been using imagery that draws on the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep. And if you've been here over the past few weeks, you've heard us take a deep dive into what shepherds are like, what sheep are like, what the terrain in Israel is like. But in verse 5, there's a shift, and it becomes less clear if David is sticking with that metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd. There are many scholars, in fact, I would say most scholars that I've read, that think the metaphor changes from the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep in verse 5 to the relationship between a host and a guest, or maybe even a king and a guest. And uh, I had wanted to kind of stick with the sheep metaphor just because like you know we got posters with a shepherd on it and stuff but I don't want to force it Um, and I tend to go with the majority that um, I think the metaphor shifts but I still want to briefly tell you how this passage could still be using the image of a shepherd and a sheep so our passage says you prepare a table before me and I don't think I need to explain to most of you, that sheep don't sit at tables. Um, So if David has a shepherd preparing a table for a sheep in mind, he must have been talking about something other than uh, what immediately comes to mind when we hear the word table. So we've talked about how dependent sheep are on their shepherd. And remember, this is the desert region in Israel. And so the shepherd had to keep moving the sheep to places that they could find the green pastures and the still waters and the places that they were free from predators. And in the summer, the shepherds would lead their sheep to high mountain country. And the destination was often a high plateau. And I've actually got an image of one of these high plateaus. This is beside the Dead Sea. So if you see in that image, uh, that is one of the places during the summer that shepherd might lead their sheep to graze. These are often called tablelands. In fact, if you were to search tablelands in your Bible, you'd find that that word comes up in the Old Testament a whole lot. Um, And in the U.S. and Europe, uh, these tablelands, we call them mesas. Mesa is the Latin word for table. So it's possible that David has in mind the shepherd preparing the tableland for his sheep. And in order to prepare the tableland for the sheep, a shepherd literally has to go ahead of his sheep, find the safest passage, because you can look at the image and see it wouldn't be easy to get up um, with a flock of sheep. 
He has to scout places that they can find green pasture. He has to kill snakes. He has to remove poisonous plants. And if we look at Psalm 23.5 through the lens of the sheep-shepherd relationship, it speaks of the lengths that the good shepherd will go to in order to provide for his sheep. The lengths that he will go to prepare a table for his sheep. In past weeks, we've talked about how the good shepherd doesn't just find the sheep food and water and protect them, but he has to alleviate anxiety and fear or else the sheep are not going to eat. They're not going to lie down in these green pastures. They're going to be too nervous to ever calm down and eat and drink and rest. And in the same way that the shepherd has to lead the sheep through the valley of the shadow of death, in verse 5 we see that even when the shepherd has fully prepared the table, they're still in the presence of their enemies. The enemies of the sheep would be the predators. And I've read in those days, it's different now than it was in those days, but in those days there were wolves and there were still bears and lions. Fortunately, if you uh, go to visit the Holy Land, you're probably not going to get taken down by a lion these days. But back in uh, the ancient David days, there were lions just waiting for one of the sheep to get separated from the flock. A sheep's not going to eat or drink unless she feels safe and protected. So she has to fully trust her shepherd. And verse 5 shows us a sheep who is secure even in the presence of her enemies. So last week after church, we had a lunch for uh, people who are interested in joining a community group. And um, from my perspective, it was a great time. If, if that's you, if you're looking to connect in a community and you weren't able to make it, reach out to me and I'll help you do that. But that's wasn't actually the point of me telling you that. The point of me telling you that is there were lots of kids last week. And uh, so while the grown-ups were talking about boring community group stuff, the kids were in here in the gym, and my wife and four other amazing women were playing with the kids. And, uh, and my kids were there as well, and my two-year-old son Jude was in here. And if you only show up here on Sundays, you may not be aware of it, but under this nice carpet, uh, there's, a, there's a gym floor here. And from the like free throw line to the goal, it's all black. And it, uh, the gym just got a new coat of wax on it like two weeks ago. It smelled awful, so I am positive that it happened. Um, and so it's really shiny. And my wife was telling me that Jude, my son, for some reason, was scared to step on the black. It was like he would want to get from one side to the other, but he would come to the black and just kind of like stop like he was looking at this chasm or something. And I don't know if he, it was so shiny that he thought it was wet paint or what, but she was telling me this. But by the time I saw him, the thing was over and he's jumping all around. He's jumping up and down on the black paint like it's no big deal. And it's because even though he feared the darkness and the unknown, he was at ease because he saw his mama and his big sister walking on that, walking on that paint and showing him it's okay. Even though you're afraid, it's okay. And in the same way, if the sheep are going to calm down enough to eat and drink and lie down, they need to have a shepherd who goes before them and says, it's okay. 
I know this is scary, but look, it won't hurt you. And really, I think when we think about, you know, David saying, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, we can uh, speculate about, was he talking about himself? Is he talking about a sheep? What are these enemies? And I think it's less important what David intended when he wrote about his enemies. Here's what I think matters. As you read Psalm 23, as you speak it, as you pray it, as you think about it, who comes to mind when you think about being in the presence of your enemies? As I've uh, tried to learn the discipline of praying the Psalms, I don't have people coming after me with swords and shooting arrows at me. So I have to kind of contextualize, what does this mean for me when I'm praying these psalms and it's talking about enemies. And so I ask you, who is the enemy that comes to mind? Is it a person? Or is it a power? Or an emotion? Or is it death? Whatever that enemy is that threatens to steal your peace and your joy, it doesn't magically go away just because you're a follower of Jesus just because you follow the Good Shepherd. But because you have a Good Shepherd, you don't have to fear it. That's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4 um, in our uh, message of assurance that Jack gave us. He quoted Philippians 4 and it says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what it's talking about. The presence and the nearness of the Good Shepherd brings his sheep peace. It doesn't mean that there's nothing to fear. It means that our trust and the nearness of Jesus Christ himself in our hearts means we don't have to fear. As I said, <clears throat> most biblical scholars don't think that David is sticking with the shepherd-sheep relationship in verse 5 because Sheep don't eat at tables, and if you keep reading, they have a cup that's overflowing. Sheep don't drink from cups. And, and I'm still going to tell you what it could mean next week. Don't worry about it. Um, but it's, it's, a little, it's a little harder. It feels like it might be forcing uh, the metaphor. And also, you know, I talked about the idea that the table might be talking about the table land. But if you look in the Hebrew, table is one word. Table land is another word. But more than that, the table in the ancient Near Eastern context was significant. It meant something to them that it doesn't mean to us. So I want to talk about some of the historical context. And uh, just so you know, when I say ancient Near Eastern, uh, all I'm talking about is Israel and the surrounding areas, like modern-day Turkey, North Africa, um, areas like that during the time of David and even the time of Jesus. That's what the ancient Near East is. So in our culture, if you want to show someone how wealthy you are, <clears throat> you buy a huge house and you park a fancy car outside of it. Now we know it could just mean you're in a lot of debt. But still, if you want to show somebody that you really have wealth, buy a big house and park a car in front of it. If you're really wealthy, you might have a gate 
around your house. If you've ever driven around Beverly Hills, um, most of the houses have huge gates, and the bigger the house is, the farther they're set from the road, and the more trees there are, so that you're just seeing the top of it over the treetops. And it's like the more wealth and status you have, the more isolation and privacy you have. It sends the message, I'm such a big deal, you can't even have access to me. But in the ancient Near East, things were different. Possessions were still obviously a sign of wealth because, you know, we can read stories in the Bible and people still, like, had their fancy turban or, you know, their, you know, uh, I don't know, like, pedigree, camel, whatever it would be. That was still a thing. <clears throat> but instead of keeping people out, to show their wealth, they wanted to invite people in. The way you showed how wealthy you were was to host people, lavishing them with gifts and hospitality and offering them far more food than they could possibly eat. And I literally mean like giving them ridiculous amounts of food because in a time of scarcity, it sent the message, I can afford to just throw this stuff away. And by that standard, my two-year-old and four-year-old children must think that I am the wealthiest person on earth because I throw away the majority of all the food that I set before them. You must have toddlers who eat because you're not laughing, but my toddlers do not eat. <clears throat> we, we have a lot of food waste. It hurts my soul. Um, anyway, in the ancient Near East, hosting people was a big deal. That's what I'm getting at. So they're... Um, is an Assyrian biblical scholar named George Lamza. And whenever you can get someone who's a biblical scholar and there's someone from that area, um, you get some good insight. So I want you to listen to this quote from George Lamza. In the East, a man's fame is spread by means of his table and lavish hospitality rather than by his possessions. Strangers and neighbors alike discuss tables where they have been guests. Such tales spread from one town to another and are handed down from one generation to another. There's considerable gossip as to how guests and strangers are entertained. So um, I, like, I, I try not to mention it every week, but it seems almost every week that I mention that I was in a touring band for a long time. And we would... <laughs> We would stay in people's houses, and one time we, uh, in San Francisco, stayed at this kid's house, and his dad was the VP for a company called Apple. And um, it's the biggest house I've ever been in. Like, their wine cellar was bigger than any house I've ever been in. And so, like, that's the kind of stories I'll tell my kids about. What's well, the same way for these people. Like... It goes generation to generation telling about the parties you've been to and how things were hosted. And the most famous hopes were kings and patriarchs. And then the more important of an honored guest they had, the more lavish the hospitality in the meal. So an example from the Bible would be, if you remember the story of King, Sol king Solomon hosting the Queen of Sheba. He pulled out all the stops, gave her all these gifts. It's ridiculous, all the stuff. Um, and... He was hosting her because he was important, but he was also showing her, like, check out how wealthy I am. So all I'm saying is to prepare a table means to prepare a meal. And when people in the Bible talk about the table, 
they were really talking about the food. Um, even now when we talk about the Lord's Supper, sometimes we'll refer to the table, and it might not even be on a table. Um, but probably the picture that Psalm 23, 5 paints is a picture of a large meal spread out before David. And uh, kids, if I'm losing you and you're like, why is he talking about furniture for so long? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you some, some Bible stories that you might be familiar with because this isn't the first time in the Old Testament that we see a generous host inviting someone to dine at his table. If you think of King David himself, after his best friend Jonathan had been killed, he found Jonathan's uh, only remaining child, and it was his son Mephibosheth, which is a tongue twister every single time. But Mephibosheth had been crippled from birth. And when David summoned Mephibosheth to, to come to him, I imagine that he thought he was toast because he was one of the descendants of King Saul who had been trying to destroy David. But David, rather than destroying him, showed him mercy. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So there's one example from a Bible story that you might know where David honored his guest by having him at his table. Maybe you remember the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. His older brothers sold him into slavery, and years later, when there was famine, they go to Egypt to buy food. Had no idea that their brother ended up there. Probably had no idea that their brother was even still alive. And they definitely had no idea that their brother was the person in charge of the food that they were buying. So there's this moving scene in Genesis 43 where Joseph hosts his brothers before they recognize him. And Joseph does not exact revenge on his brothers. He actually blesses them. And when the meal is described in Genesis 43, 34, it says, Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So there's an emphasis that the food comes from Joseph's own table. Again, the emphasis isn't on the piece of furniture. Who even cares what the piece of furniture is? The point is the quality of the food and who is providing it. The fact that it came from Joseph's table, who was basically second in command to Pharaoh, means this would have been high quality, special food. And look how Benjamin, the honored guest, is honored. See, Benjamin, of all of the brothers, Benjamin is the only one who wasn't a half-brother. He was a full brother because you uh, might remember uh, Joseph and Benjamin had the same mom. So the honored guest is honored with five times as much food as the other brothers. Do you think that he ate all of that food? Absolutely not. It wasn't about you have to clean your plate, Benjamin. The point was, you're not going to be able to finish this. I'm showing you what an honored guest you are by giving you so much extra food. So here's one more strange story from Genesis that some of you kids might remember from Bible stories. And this time it comes from chapter 18. God appears to Abraham 
in the form of three travelers. It's a strange story. Even like pastors like me, kind of, we scratch our head a little bit when we try to explain it. But this is how the story goes. I'm going to read it to you from Genesis 18, 2 through 8. He lifted up his eyes, and this is Abraham. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. So he knew from his posture, he ran, which was not an honorable thing to do, and he bowed, which meant he was in the presence of someone greater than him. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant. Do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them. He stood while they ate. He stood by them under the tree while they ate. So let me point out a couple of things here. Abraham knew these guys were important. And so he immediately went into host mode, right? And in verse 5, he says, let me bring a morsel of bread. Now, I literally looked up the definition of morsel just to make sure it meant what I was thinking. When I think morsel, I think that little piece of bourbon chicken on the toothpick that they give you in the food court at the mall, you know, like it's just a mouthful. It's, you're not going to, you know, it's enough to make you want to buy some, and then when you buy it, you regret it. Just stick with the morsel. But... <laughs> After, after Abraham promises them just a morsel of bread, look at what he does. He asks for three sias of fine flour to make bread. You know how much a sia is? You don't. It's okay. I had to look it up too. Seven quarts. And he, he ordered three of those, which means each three of these people was getting seven, seven sias. That's 21 quarts, man. Like, that's a lot of bread. That's not a morsel. And then, he doesn't stop there. He kills a calf, a whole cow for three dudes. And then, he goes and he gets curds and milk. So, do you see what's going on here? Abraham is giving them far more food than they can possibly eat because that's how a host treats a guest of honor. You have to wonder if they would say their cup overflows. But there's one big difference between the host in Psalm 23 and the way David and Joseph and Abraham hosted. Abraham went to Sarah, went to Sarah, and said, quick, three seeds of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And we don't have any commentary on how that hit Sarah. We don't have any commentary on the expression on her face when he said this. Um, then he goes to a servant boy to prepare the calf. So uh, I'm not making any statement about how things should be, but I'm just saying in the ancient Near East, we have documents in the Old Testament, we have old Jewish documents, and we have documents from other cultures that would confirm the fact that 
host, do not prepare the food. Women and servants prepare the food. And we see that that's what's going on in these three passages that we looked at. But Psalm 23.5 says, you prepare a table. And the you David is speaking to is the Lord, the good shepherd. He himself prepares the table for you. And I want you to like try to get your head around the fact that this isn't just some old Hebrew poem, that this is actually God's living word meant for you. Try to wrap your head around the fact that the God of all creation who is worthy of all honor and glory and worship prepares a table himself for you. Everything is backward. The Lord is the king, the one who should be served, but you are his honored guest. And if you think I'm making too much of this, listen to what Jesus, our good shepherd, asks his disciples in Luke 22:27. This is just the first half. He asks this question, for who is the greater one who reclines at table? Sorry, for who is the greater? Comma. One who reclines at table or one who serves? The answer, is it not the one who reclines at table? And by reclines at table, that just means the one who's sitting at the table eating. Jesus makes it perfectly clear how this works. People who are great don't prepare tables and serve. Servants prepare tables and serve. The great ones are the ones who sit at the table. But then look at what Jesus says in response to this idea, the second half of verse 27. Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Is that astounding to you that God came down to us as one who serves? It's like Jesus is begging us to make the connection, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the generous host. Psalm 23 is about me. God takes our cultural norms and our customs and our pride and our feeble attempts at glory and he turns them on our heads because we want a big mansion and a gate that keeps everyone out. And what does God do? He builds a mansion and keeps building and keeps building and keeps building until he can invite everyone in so that everyone has their own room. We want to impress important people with our hospitality. God honors unimportant, undeserving people with his hospitality. All the poor and powerless all the broken, all the sinful, that's who we are. If that's how God treats us, the poor and the powerless, if Jesus is among us as the one who serves, that changes everything. How can you understand this and continue to think selfish, entitled thoughts about your own glory? We do. I do. But my hope and my prayer for myself and in extension for you 
is that I would become more and more aware of the presence and the glory of God and the awareness that for whatever reason, God honors me and serves me so that I don't think I'm entitled to it. If that's how God treats us, if Jesus is among us as the one who serves, then what can you do in return? Nothing. What do you have that God needs? Nothing. Because everything you have has been given to you by God. Your time, your talents, your resources, your possessions, your relationships, your relationship with Jesus, your salvation, your very life. So you know what He wants you to do? He wants you to follow His example and go and serve others. If you want to thank God for what He's done, bless someone else more than they deserve. Make yourself lower than anyone thinks you are. In Luke 13... Jesus said, People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. You don't want to show up to the table at the kingdom of God trying to make yourself first. Being a pastor and preaching lots of sermons doesn't get you a better seat at the table in the kingdom of God. You know what does? Emptying yourself and serving others and loving and serving and having compassion on those that the world would call the least of these. And anyone can do that. When Brandy and I were living in Nashville and we were uh, newlyweds, we started making bagged lunches after church on Sundays and we'd go downtown to First Avenue to where the homeless people hung out by the river and we'd give them lunches, um, but we'd also try to sit and get to know them and learn their names and hear their stories. And it was amazing sometimes. It was um, scary sometimes. It was frustrating sometimes to see people that you are rooting for and to see them keep making the same mistakes. It was discouraging sometimes because there were days that we'd wonder if we'd made any difference at all. If we were just maybe wasting our time in doing this to make ourselves feel better. But we'd go to the grocery store and we'd buy the cheapest meat and the cheapest bread, cheap generic chips, whatever cheap fruit we could buy in bulk. And there was a practical reason that we did that, of course, because we were, you know, young, broke, newlyweds, and we couldn't really afford boar's head subs for everybody. Um, and also, you know, if we bought cheaper, it would go farther. But usually after we left downtown, Brandy and I would go out to eat, and we'd spend about as much on our two meals as we had just spent on 20 of them. And I always felt conflicted about that. My point in telling you this isn't to be like, hey, check out how awesome I am hanging out with homeless people. This is my point. In the kingdom of God, Jesus shows up at First Avenue by the river in Nashville with a massive bus, and anyone who will get on is taken 
to the most lavish meal they've ever had in their life. It doesn't matter if you're homeless, if you're jobless, if you're addicted, if you're the scum of the earth by the standards of our society, you are welcome at the table. Jesus told a story one time about a king who threw a wedding feast for his son, and he prepared the kind of ancient Near Eastern spread that would have been legendary. There would have been rumors about it for generations to come. There was oxen and fattened calves and great decorations and all the best that there was to offer, but none of the guests showed up. So the king told his servants, and this is Matthew 22, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I want you to know that God, the God of all creation, the one that people speculate about, the one that people have existential questions about, He has prepared a table and He wants you at it. He knows your name. He prepared it for you with the things that you especially will like. And He has unlimited resources. It is more than you can ask for or imagine. In Revelation 19, an angel said to the Apostle John, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, you are blessed because you are invited to the supper. And all you have to do is come. All you have to do is show up. But I want you to hear me. Our hope is not just for the afterlife. The Lord prepares a table right now, today, wherever you may find yourself. At the wedding feast of the Lamb, everything will be made new. No more death, no more suffering, no more tears, no more fear. We'll be reunited with those that we've lost. But in Psalm 23, David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And no one is certain what David meant by enemies, but there is one thing I can tell you he is not describing heaven, he is describing earth our present reality, that there are enemies. And if you don't have personal enemies, I can tell you there is an enemy of your soul who does not want you to have a relationship with God. And he does not want you to believe that God is near. And he does not want you to think that God is enough. He wants you to fear But David is describing this life right now that God loves you, that he, want, he wants you, He invites you. And if you're not special to anyone else in the world, you are special to God. My hero, Brother Lawrence, said, said it this way over 300 years ago. He said, The king who is full of goodness and mercy doesn't punish me. Rather, he embraces me lovingly 
and invites me to eat at his table. He serves me himself and gives me the keys to his treasury, treating me as his favorite. I want you to have intimacy with God to the point that you can say, he treats me like I'm his favorite. It's astounding how selfish I am and how much of the day I spend thinking about foolish things and doing and saying things that would lead anyone to think that I am not giving God a thought, that I'm not following Jesus. And despite all of this, God loves me. Like, He really loves me, and I know it, and I experience it. And He doesn't repay me with what I deserve. He serves me. He doesn't just tolerate me, but He wants to be with me. And I want you to experience that. Lucy is my four-year-old daughter, and, you know, she doesn't have the deepest theology. Um, But she can tell you in her four-year-old way what is true of anyone who decides to stop trusting in their own efforts and start trusting in Jesus. She says, Jesus loves me even when I'm a stinker butt. (laughs) So, Lucy, I hope you'll get to meet her. If you've met her, you know she's a willful little spark plug, and um, she can be bad sometimes. And but when she gets in trouble, it breaks her heart. Um, when she, the thing she gets in trouble for the most is taking something from her little brother. And when she takes something from her little brother and I have to get onto her, she screams. But then it turns into tears and she cries. And then she'll come and hug me and say, Dada, do you forgive me? Of course I forgive you, Lucy. Do you still love me? Yes. And I'm not just saying this. She does this almost every time. And then she'll say, do you still love me even when I'm a stinker butt? Of course I do, Lucy. The Lord is your shepherd, and he knows you. He lays down his life for his sheep. He prepares a table before you with more than you can possibly eat. And even in the presence of the things that scare you the most, you can rest. You can be secure and you don't have to fear because He is always with you. And He loves you even when you're a stinker butt. The Gospel means good news and there is no better news than that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, our Good Shepherd, our brother, our friend, Jesus, our Comforter and our Guide, Holy Spirit, thank You that You are with us. Thank You 
God, that we can know You and be known by You. And that You don't treat us as we deserve, but because of what our big brother Jesus has done for us. We're holy and righteous in Your sight. Lord, let this good news permeate our hearts. Whatever shame there is in our hearts, whatever lies there are, Will you speak to our hearts and remind us of what's true about you? Remind us about what's true about who we are, your beloved children. And Lord, the table is always before us. You are always before us. May we be aware of it. And by your grace, may we partake of it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this last song as we celebrate what God's done for us.